You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. You may be seated for the reading of God's Word. Our first lesson comes from Psalm 46, verse 10, which you can find on page 472 of your Pew Bible. And as we are glad to say each week, if you do not have a Bible of your own at home, please take one with you. We would love to make a gift of that to you. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The word of the Lord. Join me in standing for the gospel. Today's reading is out of Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16, found on page 861 in your pew Bibles. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Isn't it funny how helpful music can be to kind of get you in your kind of heart and mind and body kind of warmed up? This has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just sort of sharing something with you right now. I, uh, I got back from Pittsburgh. Uh, I was at a conference uh, this weekend, Friday and Saturday. I got back at like 1130 last night. And y'all, I was um, technically prepared for this morning, but I was not like bodily and emotionally prepared for this morning. But after the music... Now I'm ready. (laughs) Thank you. I don't know where they are. Musicians, vocalists, thank you. I I needed that. Um, Hey, by way of orientation, today is the first Sunday of Lent, and Lent is a deeply and profoundly misunderstood season of the church year. On one hand, there are people, maybe some of you in the room uh, right now, who find Lent depressing. And whenever Lent comes around in the church calendar, you're like, come on, guys, we are Christians. We should be joyful in all circumstances. How can you have a whole season where you are specifically not joyful, right? On the other hand, there are those of you who look at those people and you like scooch away from them in the pews. And you're like, you love Lent. It's your favorite season of the year because you think finally we can stop pretending to be joyful. Life is hard. 
Life is full of pain. Let's be honest, you say. Finally, we can tell the truth. And in a sense, both of you are right. Followers of Jesus do possess the resources to be joyful in all circumstances. You're right. Life is hard. It is full of pain. Let's tell the truth. Yeah, but you're both wrong too. Choosing to spend a season in solemn reflection and discipline is not the opposite of joy. It is the foundation of joy. The, higher the, high, the highs are much higher when the lows are lower. You got to go down before you can go up. And you're both wrong. Lent is not permission for melancholy gloominess, but rather an invitation to be met by Jesus in the difficult and painful places of life and to find your consolation in him. And so no matter who you are, no matter what your personality or disposition is, Lent will pose both an invitation and a challenge to you. There's something here for you in the season of Lent. Now, to help us lean into this season, uh, we're in part two of a new sermon series, a series that we're calling Virtue Practicing Redemptive Habits. One of the most urgent questions in our moment in history is just very simply, how do we change? How do human beings change? And uh, when I was at the conference uh, in Pittsburgh this past weekend, so many of the college students with whom I interacted were asking a version of this question. How do I change? How do I stop being anxious and become confident? How do I stop being fearful and become joyful? How do I become a different kind of person? I'm dissatisfied with the person that I am. I want to be a different kind of person, a different kind of human. How do I get there? And it's a question that doesn't go away as we get older. If anything, that question, I think, just becomes a little more desperate as the years go by. You grow out of the teenage years, you become a young adult, and you realize you still have the struggles that you had as a 14-year-old, only now they're inappropriate because now you're too old for them, and now the stakes are higher. You grow into adulthood, maybe you get married, maybe you don't. If you do get married, you bring your problems and your addictions and your dysfunctions into the marriage. Oh, no. Now someone else sees them too. Now they're causing havoc in somebody else's life, not just your own. Maybe years past, maybe you have kids. Now your issues are inflicted upon another generation. And by this time, your selfishness and your addictions and your bitterness are deeply ingrained. Maybe your marriage lasts, maybe it does not. Maybe you keep a relationship with your kids. Maybe it estranges you from your kids. You grow old, people begin to avoid you. Maybe they can only bear to be around you for limited periods of time. You're aware of this, and part of you understands, but part of you is also angry at the unfairness of it all. Don't they know how hard you're trying to be better? Right? That's a good way to start a sermon. Happy Lent, everybody. <laughs> oh... No one really changes. They just become more of who they already are. I'm not sure who said that. Somebody said it. No one really changes. They just become more of who they already are. As another theologian put it, we are all more comfortable in our natural habitat. And while it's upsetting, it shouldn't be all that hard to comprehend that what we want for someone may not be what they want for themselves. When it comes to normal relationships, I don't think people change so much as what they want and need changes. As time passes, they grow into themselves, becoming more of what they've always been, but probably less inclined to hide it, <laughs> right? In other words, the idea is that the, the natural trajectory of our lives is that the person we are doesn't really change. Our 
desire to perform for other people sort of decreases as the years go by. And so by the time we reach old age, we're just full throttle ourselves. Nobody cares anymore. This is who I am. Deal with it. Uh, Another way to put it would be water always seeks its own level. That in the younger years of life, the water in the glass that is your life is kind of sloshing around, rising and falling, rising and falling. In the later years, it just kind of settles. This is where I am. This is the level I'm at. Not going up and down anymore. One more final quote. As another theologian puts it, people do not drift towards holiness. doesn't happen by accident. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards things like godliness or prayer or obedience to Scripture or faith or delight in the Lord. We drift towards things like compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. That's all very bleak, but the point is just to kind of put before all of us this morning that this is the natural way of things. This is where we will drift. If you take your foot off the brake and off the accelerator, this is where the car naturally steers. And if this is the basic human problem under which we all struggle and labor, then what are we supposed to do about it? And the answer comes to us from ancient history, the ancient history of the church, from the lives of the apostles in the early church, from the Lord Jesus, from the prophets of the Old Testament, going all the way back to the beginning. The answer lies in what our ancestors would call spiritual disciplines and what in our present moment in history we might call redemptive habits. Habits that enable us to cultivate virtue and change for the better. Not, let's be clear, for the purpose of self-optimization. This is not how to become a better you. But rather for the purposes of love. Embracing the redemptive habits of virtue will not make you a more impressive person. These are not resume builders. But they will, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, slowly transform your soul to more closely resemble the person of Jesus. Now, a few days ago on Ash Wednesday, we began this by talking about the practice of remembering your death, the practice of remembering your death, and that beginning with remembering your own mortality is kind of a keystone or core essential practice um, in order to grow in virtue and to grow in love. Today, we're going to talk about the practice of silence and solitude, and in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about the practices of fasting and giving and submission and prayer. Not an exhaustive list of redemptive habits, but a few key practices to get us going, to get us moving through this season of Lent. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the practice of silence and solitude. Earlier this week, I was reading a short story by a Russian writer named Anton Chekhov, and the short story is called The Bet. You can find it for free online. Take you five minutes to read it. Very short. Here's a summary of the story. You've got a banker and a lawyer that are at like a cocktail party, and they are arguing over politics, and they they, they reach the, the topic of capital punishment. And there's some debate in the room about which is the more appropriate form of punishment. Uh, to the death sentence, or lifelong imprisonment. 
And the debate is, which one is worse? And which one is more merciful? Is it more merciful to end somebody's life or more merciful to keep them imprisoned the rest of their life? Or is that one perhaps more cruel? And there's some you know, debate and some arguing. And eventually, it boils down to this banker and this lawyer. We don't even know their names. They're at odds with each other. And the banker says, lifelong imprisonment is the cruelest thing you can do to another person. Silence and solitude forever are the worst thing that can happen. And the lawyer says, no, 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 ending somebody's life is way, is way worse. And the banker says, care to make it interesting? Let's make it a bet. I bet you can't make it five years in complete isolation. I bet you two million rubles you can't make it five years. And the lawyer says, I'll do you one better. I can go 15 years in silence and solitude. They shake hands. It's a wager. The bet is on. The lawyer is... Uh, imprisoned in this one particular room of a house. He's to have no interaction with the outside world, complete silence and solitude for 15 years. If he makes it, he gets 2 million rubles. The story goes on and the lawyer who's imprisoned at first plays piano on his own and then he begins to ask for books to read. And, and over, over the course of the 15 years, he sort of consumes as much data and information and knowledge and human wisdom as he can get, all while having no interaction with any other humans. The night before the 15 years is up, the banker is in a panic. At this point in his life, he's actually gone broke. He doesn't have two million rubles anymore. And he is terrified that he only, the lawyer only has to last a few more hours before he wins the bet. And the banker thinks to himself, I'm going to kill him because I can't afford for him to win. He breaks into the room. He finds the lawyer asleep at his desk. And he sneaks over and he realizes there's a handwritten note right beside the lawyer. He opens it up and he reads it. And I won't recite the whole thing to you, but it's basically the lawyer having consumed sort of like the whole of human written codified knowledge and wisdom has come to the end of himself. He despises everything. He despises humanity. He despises life. He renounces the bet, renounces the two million rubles and says, I want nothing to do with any of it. The banker realizes that the man has been completely crushed and broken by his silence and solitude. He takes the note. He kisses the head of the lawyer. He leaves the room. And the next morning, the guards go to the banker and they say, hey, early in the early hours of the morning, we saw the man crawl out the window and run away, never to be seen again. And that's it. The story ends. How very Russian, right? <laughs> that is not an American story. <laughs> that is a Russian story. <laughs> and I think that our ambivalence towards the practice of silence and solitude is depicted in this story. Because I think for busy, hurried, noisy American Christians, we look toward, actually just drop the word Christian, for busy, noisy, hurried Americans, we look at silence and solitude and there's something in us that thinks, ooh, I want that. My life is noisy, my life is busy. I want, I, I wish I had more of that in my life. I, there's something appealing about silence and solitude and we feel hungry for it and we're drawn towards it, but there's also something appalling about it. Something that makes us afraid. Something that makes us think, I don't know what I'm gonna find there and I don't know what that's gonna do to me. 
So I'm not really sure how I feel about that. We have a kind of ambivalence. And, and actually, I think we heard a bit of this, or at least an echo of this, in the poem that we read in the very beginning of the service. To be is to be confronted with the void, a blankness, a blackness that both appeals and appalls. Once known by the void, I mean, one only has three choices. We're going to circle back to those three choices later in a few minutes. But we're simultaneously desirous of and uncomfortable with silence and solitude. And I think as we think about this together, it's important for us to know that we are not the first ones to contemplate what it might mean to practice silence and solitude. There is a long history of this going all the way back to the story of Scripture. Let me just name for you a few of the characters in the biblical story who themselves have been transformed by silence and solitude. You might begin with Moses. Moses, this is sort of a very little-known part of his story because it's only a few sentences in the book of Exodus. But Moses, after he murders an Egyptian, do you know where he goes? He goes to the wilderness. For how long? A week? 40 years. Moses spends a significant portion of his life being a shepherd, alone or nearly alone, in the wilderness. And it changes him. Only after that season is he ready to encounter God's presence in the burning bush and then go on to become God's prophet and God's messenger to Pharaoh and to Egypt. But first, he must spend time in silence and solitude in the wilderness. Then you might think about someone like Elijah, who goes up on Mount Horeb to hear the gentle whisper of God's voice. That's in 1 Kings chapter 19. You might think of someone like Habakkuk, very little known Old Testament prophet who stands on the guard post keeping watch to hear what God would say to him in Habakkuk chapter 2. You might think about someone like Zephaniah who writes, be silent before the sovereign Lord. You might think about the Apostle Paul who in sort of a echo or maybe an inverse echo of the story of Moses The Apostle Paul is persecuting God's people. He's on his way to Damascus. The Spirit of God literally, physically knocks him off his horse. And he hears the audible voice of the Lord Jesus. And he's going to be sent as God's messenger. But where does he go first? In in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul tells us that first, he goes and he practices silence and solitude in Arabia. He goes and is alone in the wilderness for a season before he is then prepared to enter into his ministry. And so if that's how silence and solitude has formed these people, these members of the people of God, I wonder to what extent has silence and solitude formed you? Or its inverse, I wonder to what extent noise and hurry and crowdedness has formed you. I wonder how it's formed me. Psalm 46, which we read earlier, reads very simply, one little sentence, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And then in our gospel lesson, we read about how Jesus himself would, not, would minister to the crowd, but then from time to time would withdraw from the crowd and would go to desolate places and pray. And we're going to hold these two texts, and we're also just going to look at the whole council of Scripture on this. So we're going to see together that there's an invitation to practice silence and solitude, that there's an invitation from God to be met by God in the silence and solitude, but that it's a difficult invitation and one that some of us are reticent to accept. And so let's begin with simply what that invitation could mean for us if we were to accept it. 
if you do begin to practice silence and solitude, what might you experience? Or another way to ask it would be, what are the potential benefits, the potential good fruit that might come on the other side of practicing silence and solitude? Well, one would be to simply hear the voice of God. Most of our lives are too hurried and too busy and too noisy and too crowded to hear God's voice. And by hear God's voice, we don't so much mean an audible voice speaking to our ears, but rather the quiet and gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit speaking to our minds and speaking to our hearts. God will very rarely shout at us. He will, if necessary, to get our attention. And quite often that shouting takes the form of suffering and pain and difficulty and conflict and confrontation. There are moments where God will violently interrupt our lives in order to get our attention if we are unwilling to listen. But he is always whispering. And when you practice silence and solitude, you get your body and your heart and your mind in a posture where you may just be able to listen. Another reason might be to experience intimacy with God. So many of us believe the Christian faith cognitively, intellectually in our minds, but we do not experience the love and affection of God in in our beings. We don't feel it. And part of the reason why we do not feel it may be that we are not often in a posture to experience it. It is very hard to feel and experience the love of God when you are careening recklessly and relentlessly in a hurried fashion through your day, trying to accomplish as much as you possibly can, and this may be worst of all, trying to accomplish as much as you can for God. But you have to slow down and you have to be still and quiet in order to experience God's affection for you. You will not experience God's affection while you're running at 60 miles an hour. You must slow to a walk. You may need to sit. You may need to lie down (laughs) in order to experience God's affection for you. Uh, There's a missionary uh, from hundreds of years ago named David Brainerd, 1742. And he wrote this of his experience of what it was like to, to lay his work aside. And his work, by the way, was very good. His work of evangelism, his work of service his work of ministering to people, all in the name of God, all in the name of Jesus, but to lay that work aside and to retreat into silence and solitude. He wrote, I withdrew to my usual place of retirement. We don't really talk that way. Retirement doesn't mean like he's retired from work. He means he's resting. Of peace and tranquility. I seem to depend wholly upon my dear Lord, wholly weaned from all other dependencies. I know not what to say to my God, but only to lean on his bosom, as it were, and to breathe out my desires after a perfect conformity to him in all things. God was so precious to my soul that the world with all its enjoyments was infinitely vile. I saw him as such a fountain of goodness that it seemed impossible that I should ever distrust him again or to be in any way anxious about anything that should happen to me. I would love to be able to say something like that someday, (laughs) genuinely. To be able to say, compared to God, everything else just seems gross. That I experience God to be this like fountain of goodness bubbling up that 
that it starts to feel like it would be impossible for me to ever distrust God ever again and that it would be impossible for me to ever feel anxious or fearful about anything ever again. I cannot genuinely say that right now, but I would like to. Maybe you would like to as well. Another reason, another good fruit to retreat into silence and solitude would be to be physically and spiritually healed. Jesus says to his disciples in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. What must it have been like to be a disciple and to have Jesus be the one that says that to you? You know, a lot of us experience Jesus as somebody who either makes you feel guilty or asks you to do things, maybe asks you to do things that are hard. But do you know that Jesus also says to you, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and let's get some rest. You know, um, this is a very old fashioned illustration, but um, in, in the days of bows and arrows, do you know how you take care of the string on your bow? Think about how a bow and arrow works. You have a long staff of wood, hopefully a little bit bendy and flexible. You take a string, not made of cotton, but made of probably like the twisted intense intestine of some animal, and you oil it so that it has some like stretch to it, and you string the bow. You tie it to one end, you tie it to the other end, you have to bend the bow, and then that string holds the tension. And with that tension, you can fire an arrow. Now, what happens if you leave that string on the bow for a long time? It begins to stretch out, it loses the tension, and the bow can no longer fire an arrow. So what do you have to do? Whenever you're done using the bow, you have to unstring it. You have to wrap the string in oilcloth and store it in a cool and dark place so that it will retain its tension and be able to continually work again and again. So many of us, our lives are like a bowstring that has been stretched and the tension never released. And you're just working and working and working and working. And you begin to say, as Bilbo Baggins once said, I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread because the tension has never been released by retreating into silence and solitude. Another reason to retreat would be to regain perspective. Another phrase for this would be to get some balcony time. Hello, balcony folks. <laughs> to be able to get to, to sort of pull back from life and get some perspective. When our family went on sabbatical this past summer, we had, we had 12 weeks of what you might call balcony time. And I can tell you, I won't go into the full answer, but I can tell you that I see our lives, I see our work, I see this church, this parish. I see everything that our family does here in Richmond differently because we got time to step away and to view it from a distance. And I can promise you, I have no idea what the actual answer will be, but I can promise you that if you take moments to step away from your life, you will view your life differently. You'll have perspective. You'll get balcony time. Another potential fruit would be to discern the will of God. 
And this kind of goes hand in hand with being able to hear God's voice, to be able to be still and quiet and reflect on where the Holy Spirit might be leading you. And then one final piece, and I say this because we're sort of heading into a very potentially tense political season as a country and as a society. And so one final bit of fruit that might come out of practicing silence and solitude is when you stop talking, do you know what you learn how to do? Stop talking. (laughs) And I need this, and I think so many. We are noisy creatures. And when you practice silence and solitude, you learn how to control your tongue in a whole new way. Now, the list could go on much longer. There are like 13 other things that I thought about sharing, and I canceled them out, and um, that would have to be a longer teaching for a different day. But there are so many good things that happen in our hearts and our minds and our bodies whenever we practice silence and solitude. The problem is, is that our lives are not primarily marked by silence and solitude. They're primarily marked by noise and hurry and crowds. Noise and hurry and crowds. Jim Elliott put it this way. I think the devil made it his business to monopolize on three elements, noise, hurry, and crowds. Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. Let's start with noise. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I find that even when I'm not around other people, I almost always have some sort of noise in the background, really because of my discomfort with silence. But more often than not, it's just a reflexive move on my part. I do it without thinking. It might be putting on a podcast or putting on some music. It might be being alone. You ever do this? You're alone in the house and it feels a little weird, so you turn on the TV. Even if you're not in the room, you just kind of want it. You want to hear human voices nearby, right? You guys are looking at me like you never do this. I know you do this. I do it too. Constant background noise. Even when I go to sleep at night, I want a fan going or a white noise machine or white noise. What a weird phrase, (laughs) right? It's like our way of saying, like, what if you just called it noise? Will that change the way you thought about it? I just need some noise. Drop the adjective. Just use the noun. (laughs) Donald Whitley puts it this way. I believe the convenience of sound has contributed to the spiritual shallowness of contemporary Western Christianity. The advent of affordable, portable sound systems, for instance, has been a mixed blessing. The negative side is that now we don't have to go anywhere without human voices. As a result, we are less frequently alone with our thoughts and alone with God's voice. Because of this, we are the most urban, noise-polluted generation ever. We have an unprecedented need to learn the discipline of silence and solitude. He wrote that in 1991. Pre-Spotify, pre-podcasts, pre-AirPods. I wonder what he would say now. Where is your, just here's just a question. And just think about it, not just today, but think about it this week. Where is your life noisy? Where is there background noise that you could shut off? Not just noise, but hurry. For many of us, the, for many of, us, the most honest objection to practicing silence and solitude would simply be, I don't have time. And you could sit here and listen to this and think, I agree with all the ideas. I'm not going to do them, but I agree with them, right? I don't have time to do them. They are nice ideas. Maybe one day when life slows down, 
then I'll practice silence and solitude. You ever use that phrase? Hey, one day, or when things slow down. During the season of Lent, in addition to, you know, giving up chocolate or whatever else you plan on giving up, what if you gave up the phrase, when life slows down? It's not going to. I would like to be a follower of Jesus, but I just don't have time. I would like to serve others, but I'm busy. I would like to seek justice for the city, but I have a job. I would like to pray with my kids, but I've got soccer practice. I would like to read the Bible and contemplate and pray, but I need to answer my email. I would like to practice silence and solitude, but my calendar is already full. The reality is nobody will practice silence and solitude for you. There are lots of things we can do for each other, but you can't do this one for each other. Not even God will do it for you. He's not going to do it for you. Silence and solitude are not a free spiritual download. They are a discipline that requires active exertion of the will in resistance to the hurry and busyness of our age. And so just like we asked, where is your life noisy? And where do you have the option or the potential of shutting off the noise? Where are you hurried? Where are you busy? Crowds. Silence and solitude are complementary disciplines to fellowship. Without silence and solitude, we're shallow. Without fellowship, we're stagnant. And we need to hold these together because I know there are some of you right now that are thinking, why are we talking about silence and solitude when loneliness is like the biggest problem in our society right now? Hey, during the season of Eastertide, we're doing a whole series on belonging and we're gonna talk about that, okay? But one thing at a time here, Silence and solitude must be held in tension or in, in kind of compatibility with fellowship, with time with each other. I don't know anybody who writes about this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his little book, Life Together, he titles two back-to-back -back chapters, The Day Together and The Day Alone. The Day Together and The Day Alone. He writes, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community Beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into a void of words and feelings. The one who wants solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity and self-infatuation and despair. Just as there are some things that you can only learn with other people, there are other things that you can only learn when you're alone. But are you ever really alone? Even when you're physically alone, we surround ourselves with digital companions, phones pinging from texts with friends and family. Ping, you're not alone. Ping, you're not alone. It's also very comforting. Are you always with people? Maybe even digitally. Are you ever really alone? And so we might just kind of wonder together, what is all of this doing to us? What kind of person is being formed by noise and by hurry and by crowds? I wonder, I, let's just speculate wildly together. Is there any connection between noise and hurry and crowds and then the symptoms that so many of us suffer under? Anxiety, distraction, fear, kind of chronic impulsivity. There's probably no connection, right? It's probably something else. Everybody practices spiritual formation, just as everybody practices habits. We are all becoming a particular kind of person through our habits. 
Hitler practiced one kind of spiritual formation. Mother Teresa practiced another, right? We are all becoming a kind of person. We are all being formed. All of us have a set of habits. And those habits are molding us and shaping us into either one kind of person or another. I tend to not experience the goodness of God's voice and intimacy and healing and discernment, perspective, self-control, all of the good things that we talked about. I tend to not experience them because I do not, or rather I rarely practice silence and solitude. And what's more, just kind of as the final capstone here, Psalm 46, that wonderful little verse, be still and know that I am God. Christians love putting that verse on coffee mugs or on plaques or billboards or something, right? So, so it's like introverts theme verse, right? When introverts join a church and they say, what's your favorite verse? They go, be still and know that I am God. Parentheses, leave me alone, right? <laughs> but you know what the rest of the context of verse 46, of Psalm 46 is? Social upheaval, chaos. The whole context of Psalm 46 is things that are not still with all of the temptations of anxiety and fear and worry and distraction, all of the things that make life not quiet, (laughs) that drive you to work harder and not be alone. I tend to be either crushed by my circumstances or think that I'm in control. And those are the two great temptations of Psalm 46. In the midst of all of the chaos that is swirling around us, you're either the kind of person who feels just totally overwhelmed. You're like, I just want to lie down and take a nap. There's so much hard stuff happening. Or you're the kind of person that like meets the challenge. You're like, I got this. If I can just buckle down and get my calendar under control, then I will make my life what I want it to be, right? You know which one I am. (laughs) But that makes me either overwhelmed or overconfident. I'm over something, either overwhelmed or overconfident. Now, Jesus, we haven't talked about him yet. Jesus is the embodiment of stillness. You might say God's shalom, God's peaceful harmony, the restfulness of God who is not anxious or frenzied or hurried. Because get this, he doesn't have to be in control, which is ironic because if anybody could have been in control, Jesus could have been in control if he had desired it. But Jesus is the one who surrenders control to the Father. Before you see, I think a lot of people are tempted to see Jesus as the most disciplined, most self-controlled human to have ever lived. And that's true. We're not taking anything away from that. But first, we must see him as the human who most fully surrendered control of his life. You might think of Jesus as a very controlled person, but have you thought of him yet as the one who surrendered control? Jesus sought less control over his own life than you and I are currently seeking. So just think about it that way. Right now, I'm seeking, you're seeking more control over our lives than Jesus sought over his own life. Jesus in his humanity would practice silence and solitude. He would often withdraw to lonely places and pray. Dallas Willard puts it this way. The desert or the closet, places of being alone and quiet, the desert or the closet is the primary place of strength. 
In stark aloneness, it is possible to have silence, to be still and to know that the Lord is God, to set God before our minds with sufficient intensity and duration that we must stay centered on him, our hearts fixed and established in trust, even when we go back to the office or the shop or the house. The desert or the closet as the primary place of strength. In solitude and silence with God, we draw our deepest and most direct uh, resource from the well of God and God's love and mercy and grace to us. If you need a, a visual metaphor for it, you might think about silence and solitude as an oasis in the midst of a desert. The oasis is the geographic place of strength for desert animals. Your life is in the wild. It's dry, it's parched. You stay there too long, you're gonna die. The oasis is the place you always return to, to drink deeply. Meeting with Jesus in silence and solitude is that oasis for you. It's the place you must continually return to, to drink deeply. And you just gotta understand this is so different from mindfulness or from Buddhist meditation. In those practices, you are getting alone to be isolated and to empty your mind. But in Christian, the Christian practice of silence and solitude is getting alone to be in communion with God, that your mind may be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Remember that poem that we read in the very beginning of the service? We talked about the poem describes the void with three options when you encounter the void. Option number one, walk away and unlearn the How does it read? The instinct of awe. In other words, when you're quiet and you're alone, those are the moments where it's most possible for you to be in awe of God and to be in awe of the life that he has given to you. And so when you encounter that void, when you encounter the invitation to silence and solitude, the very first response that most of us have is to walk away and to go, it's too much. I'm gonna unlearn that. I'm I'm not gonna be in awe. It's asking too much of me. The third is sort of similar, but is to walk along and to believe that awe asks nothing of you. In other words, like I'll practice silence and solitude, but I'm not going to let it change me. I don't, it's asking too much of me. And then option number three, and I love the way the poet Christian Wyman describes this because he doesn't give us the answer, but he does give us the invitation. Option three, are you with me, love? And then in parentheses, for love read faith. In other words, when you're faced with that invitation to silence and solitude, option one is to reject it. Option two is to like sort of engage it, but not let it change you. And then option three is to encounter a person in the silence and solitude. The one who says to you, come here, are you with me, love? And so this is the, this is where we're, this is where we're going here. Do you know why spiritual disciplines change you? Do you know why redemptive habits change you? Not because you want them to. Spiritual disciplines and redemptive habits don't change you because you want them to. They change you because they bring you into an encounter with the spirit of Jesus. You can't change yourself. What you can do is bring yourself into an encounter with Jesus whose spirit can transform you, who can change you. This is the the heart, or you might say the foundation underneath every spiritual discipline that we're gonna talk about during the season of Lent. 
a way to get your body and your mind and your heart into an encounter with Jesus so that he in his spirit can begin to go to work on you, can change you. So let's talk about how to, let's end by just describing a couple ways for you to do that. And we're almost done here. Way number one, practice number one, to schedule a regular and daily 10 to 30 minute sort of interlude of silence and solitude, to schedule it. Use your calendar to push back against the noise and the hurry and the crowd. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, let's just say I believed you, but what do I do during that time? Well, the mantra of American culture might, might go something like, don't just stand there, do something. And so for this particular practice, let's flip that on its head and say, don't just do something, stand there. Don't do something. Be still and be quiet. And for five minutes or 10 minutes or 30 minutes, try doing nothing at all and see how it goes. It might mean waking up early. It might mean taking a walk on your lunch break. It might mean asking for help. And if you're a parent with young kids and you're at home, you may need, you may need someone's assistance in order to practice this. It is worth asking for help. And if you turn to the people around you, and if you were, don't have to do this right now, but you can if you'd like to, you could ask them, the people nearby, would you help me do this? They will say yes. If they don't say yes, send them to me and then I will send them back to you and then they will say yes, okay? <laughs> it will mean intentionality, planning ahead. It will, take dis- it will take effort. It will be hard. It will be an exercise of the will and there will always be something that feels more important. For me, one of the times that I do this is between 6.30 and 7 a.m. before the kids are downstairs. I can hear them rustling upstairs, beginning to wake up, but usually they're not down before seven. I brew coffee. I take our dog, Scout, outside in the backyard. I stand on the porch. In the winter months, I can see my breath in the cold air. Usually I'm silent. My brain is kind of slowly coming out of the fog of sleep. I'm waking up. And sometimes I might say something really simple like, good morning, Lord. But that's it. No big, long, fancy prayer, no deep theological study, just being still and beginning the day. That's practice number one. Practice number two would be seizing opportune moments. Resist the urge to fill them with noise and productivity. Resist the urge to fill those opportune moments with extra productivity and instead just receive the gift, a moment of silence and solitude. Practice number three would be to schedule a retreat, an intentional time to step away. Everything else we've talked about has been ways to practice silence and solitude right there embedded in the midst of your normal life. But sometimes it's good, particularly during the season of Lent, to schedule time away, a full day, maybe even an overnight. Our staff is going on a retreat together this, uh, this Tuesday of this week. And part of that will be time together in discussion but a significant portion of that will be silence and solitude alone, away from Richmond, stepping away from our work to practice this together. You see, the role of our staff is not just to teach on these things, but to actually practice them with you. Let's conclude. Let's go back to that short story, Anton Chekhov, the bet. A very Russian story, a banker and a lawyer, and our ambivalence about silence and solitude. I wonder, Do you long for it 
Do you have a romanticized view of what it would be like to just be alone and to get away from it all? Beware. Silence and solitude is not what you think. It will change you. Do you fear silence and solitude? Does this all just feel very intimidating and out of reach? Fear not. Jesus waits for you. Jesus actually waits for both of you. This week, be still and know him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your presence and the way that you invite us to come away and to rest in you. Lord, I pray that this week you would give your spirit to us that we might have the strength and discipline of will to say no to the noise and to the hurry and to the crowds and to stop and to be still and to be quiet and to be alone with you, that we might encounter you and that you and your Holy Spirit might change us. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.